Chapter 28 Flight of the Prince Harry felt as though he too were hurtling through space. It had not happened. It could not have happened. Out of here quickly, said Snape. He seized Malfoy by the scruff of the neck and forced him through the door ahead of the rest. Greyback and the squat brother and sister followed, the latter both panting excitedly. As they vanished through the door, Harry realized he could move again. What was now holding him paralyzed against the wall was not magic, but horror and shock. He threw the invisibility cloak aside as the brutal-faced Death Eater, last to leave the tower top, was disappearing through the door. Petrificus Totalus! The Death Eater buckled as though hit in the back with something solid and fell to the ground, rigid as a waxwork. But he had barely hit the floor when Harry was clambering over him and running down the darkened staircase. Terror tore at Harry's heart. He had to get to Dumbledore, and he had to catch Snape. Somehow the two things were linked. He could reverse what had happened if he had them both together. Dumbledore could not have died. He leapt the last ten steps of the spiral staircase and stopped where he landed, his wand raised. The dimly lit corridor was full of dust. Half the ceiling seemed to have fallen in, and a battle was raging before him. But even as he attempted to make out who was fighting whom, he heard the hated voice shout, It's over! Time to go! and saw Snape disappearing around the corner at the far end of the corridor. He and Malfoy seemed to have forced their way through the fight unscathed. As Harry plunged after them, one of the fighters detached themselves from the fray and flew at him. It was the werewolf Fenrir. He was on top of Harry before Harry could raise his wand. Harry fell backward, with filthy matted hair in his face, the stench of sweat and blood filling his nose and mouth, hot, greedy breath at his throat. Petrificus Totalus! Harry felt Fenrir collapse against him. With a stupendous effort, he pushed the werewolf off and onto the floor as a jet of green light came flying toward him. He ducked and ran headfirst into the fight. His feet met something squashy and slippery on the floor, and he stumbled. There were two bodies lying there, lying face down in a pool of blood, but there was no time to investigate. Harry now saw red hair flying like flames in front of him. Ginny was locked in combat with the lumpy Death Eater, Amicus, who was throwing hex after hex at her while she dodged them. Amicus was giggling, enjoying the sport. Crucio! Crucio! You can't dance forever, pretty. Impedimenta! yelled Harry. His jinx hit Amicus in the chest. He gave a pig-like squeal of pain, was lifted off his feet, and slammed into the opposite wall slid down it, and fell out of sight behind Ron, Professor McGonagall, and Lupin, each of whom was battling a separate Death Eater. Beyond them, Harry saw Tonks fighting an enormous blonde wizard, who was sending curses flying in all directions so that they ricocheted off the walls around them, cracking stones, shattering the nearest window. Harry, where did you come from? Ginny cried, but there was no time to answer her. He put his head down and sprinted forward, narrowly avoiding a blast that erupted over his head, showering them all in bits of wall. Snape must not escape. He must catch up with Snape. Take that, shouted Professor McGonagall, and Harry glimpsed the female Death Eater, Electo, sprinting away down the corridor with her arms over her head, her brother right behind her. He launched himself after them but his foot caught on something, and next moment he was lying across someone's legs. 
Looking around, he saw Neville's pale, round face flat against the floor. Neville, are you... Morai, muttered Neville, who was clutching his stomach. Harry, Snape and Malfoy ran past. I know, I'm on it, said Harry, aiming a hex from the floor at the enormous blonde Death Eater who was causing most of the chaos. The man gave a howl of pain as the spell hit him in the face. He wheeled around, staggered, and then pounded away after the brother and sister. Harry scrambled up from the floor and began to sprint along the corridor, ignoring the bangs issuing from behind him, the yells of the others to come back, and the mute call of the figures on the ground, whose fate he did not yet know. He skidded around the corner, his trainers slippery with blood. Snape had an immense head start. Was it possible that he had already entered the cabinet in the Room of Requirement, or had the Order made steps to secure it, to prevent the Death Eaters retreating that way? He could hear nothing but his own pounding feet, his own hammering heart, as he sprinted along the next empty corridor, but then spotted a bloody footprint that showed at least one of the fleeing Death Eaters was heading toward the front doors. Perhaps the Room of Requirement was indeed blocked. He skidded around another corner, and a curse flew past him. He dived behind a suit of armor that exploded. He saw the brother and sister running down the marble staircase ahead and aimed jinxes at them, but merely hit several bewigged witches in a portrait on the landing who ran screeching into neighboring paintings. As he leapt the wreckage of armor, Harry heard more shouts and screams. Other people within the castle seemed to have awoken. He pelted toward a shortcut, hoping to overtake the brother and sister and close in on Snape and Malfoy who must surely have reached the grounds by now. Remembering to leap the vanishing step halfway down the concealed staircase, he burst through a tapestry at the bottom and out into a corridor where a number of bewildered and pajama-clad Hufflepuffs stood. Harry, we heard a noise and someone said something about the dark mark, began Ernie Macmillan. Out of the way, yelled Harry, knocking two boys aside as he sprinted toward the landing and down the remainder of the marble staircase. The oak front doors had been blasted open, there were smears of blood on the flagstones, and several terrified students stood huddled against the walls, one or two still cowering with their arms over their faces. The giant Gryffindor hourglass had been hit by a curse, and the rubies within were still falling with a loud rattle onto the flagstones below. Harry flew across the entrance hall and out into the dark grounds. He could just make out three figures racing across the lawn, heading for the gates beyond which they could disapparate. By the looks of them, the huge blonde Death Eater and, some way ahead of him, Snape and Malfoy. The cold night air ripped at Harry's lungs as he tore after them. He saw a flash of light in the distance that momentarily silhouetted his quarry. He did not know what it was, but continued to run, not yet near enough to get a good aim with a curse. Another flash, shouts, retaliatory jets of light, and Harry understood. Hagrid had emerged from his cabin and was trying to stop the Death Eaters escaping. And though every breath seemed to shred his lungs and the stitch in his chest was like fire, Harry sped up as an unbidden voice in his head said, Not Hagrid! Not Hagrid, too! Something caught Harry hard in the small of the back, and he fell forward, his face smacking the ground, blood pouring out of both nostrils. He knew, even as he rolled over, his wand ready, that the brother and sister he had overtaken using his shortcut were closing in behind him. Impedimenta! he yelled as he rolled over again, crouching close to the dark ground, 
and miraculously his jinx hit one of them, who stumbled and fell, tripping up the other. Harry leapt to his feet and sprinted on after Snape. And now he saw the vast outline of Hagrid illuminated by the light of the crescent moon revealed suddenly behind clouds. The blonde Death Eater was aiming curse after curse at the gamekeeper. But Hagrid's immense strength and the toughened skin he had inherited from his giantess mother seemed to be protecting him. Snape and Malfoy, however, were still running. They would soon be beyond the gates, able to disapparate. Harry tore past Hagrid and his opponent, took aim at Snape's back and yelled, Stupefy! He missed. The jet of red light soared past Snape's head. Snape shouted, Run, Draco! and turned. Twenty yards apart, he and Harry looked at each other before raising their wands simultaneously. Crust! But Snape parried the curse, knocking Harry backward off his feet before he could complete it. Harry rolled over and scrambled back up again as the huge Death Eater behind him yelled, Incendio! Harry heard an explosive bang and a dancing orange light spilled over all of them. Hagrid's house was on fire. Fangs in there, you evil! Hagrid bellowed. Cruce! yelled Harry for the second time, aiming for the figure ahead illuminated in the dancing firelight. But Snape blocked the spell again. Harry could see him sneering. No unforgivable curses from you, Potter, he shouted over the rushing of the flames, Hagrid's yells, and the wild yelping of the trapped fang. You haven't got the nerve or the ability. Incas, Harry roared, but Snape deflected the spell with an almost lazy flick of his arm. Fight back, Harry screamed at him. Fight back, you cowardly. Coward, did you call me Potter, shouted Snape. Your father would never attack me unless it was four on one. What would you call him, I wonder? Stoop! Blocked again and again and again until you learn to keep your mouth shut and your mind closed, Potter, sneers Snape, deflecting the curse once more. Now come, he shouted at the huge Death Eater behind Harry. It is time to be gone before the Ministry turns up. Impedi! But before he could finish this jinx, excruciating pain hit Harry. He keeled over in the grass. Someone was screaming. He would surely die of this agony. Snape was going to torture him to death or madness. No! roared Snape's voice, and the pain stopped as suddenly as it had started. Harry lay curled on the dark grass, clutching his wand and panting. Somewhere overhead, Snape was shouting, Have you forgotten our orders? Potter belongs to the Dark Lord. We are to leave him. Go, go. And Harry felt the ground shudder under his face as the brother and sister and the enormous Death Eater obeyed, running toward the gates. Harry uttered an inarticulate yell of rage. In that instant, he cared not whether he lived or died. Pushing himself to his feet again, he staggered blindly towards Snape, the man he now hated as much as he hated Voldemort himself. Sectum! Snape flicked his wand, and the curse was repelled yet again. But Harry was mere feet away now, and he could see Snape's face clearly at last. He was no longer sneering or jeering. The blazing flames showed a face full of rage. Mustering all his powers of concentration, Harry thought, Levit! No, Potter! screamed Snape. 
There was a loud bang, and Harry was soaring backward, hitting the ground hard again, and this time his wand flew out of his hand. He could hear Hagrid yelling and Fang howling as Snape closed in and looked down on him where he lay, wandless and defenseless as Dumbledore had been. Snape's pale face, illuminated by the flaming cabin, was suffused with hatred just as it had been before he had cursed Dumbledore. You dare use my own spells against me, Potter? It was I who invented them. I, the half-blood prince. And you'd turn my inventions on me, like your filthy father, would you? I don't think so. No! Harry had dived for his wand. Snape shot a hex at it, and it flew feet away into the darkness and out of sight. Kill me, then, panted Harry, who felt no fear at all, but only rage and contempt. Kill me, like you killed him, you coward. Don't! screamed Snape, and his face was suddenly demented, inhuman, as though he was in as much pain as the yelping, howling dog stuck in the burning house behind them. Call me coward! And he slashed at the air. Harry felt a white-hot, whip-like something hit him across the face and was slammed backward into the ground. Spots of light burst in front of his eyes, and for a moment all the breath seemed to have gone from his body. Then he heard a rush of wings above him, and something enormous obscured the stars. Buckbeak had flown at Snape, who staggered backward as the razor's sharp claws slashed at him. As Harry raised himself into a sitting position, his head still swimming from its last contact with the ground, he saw Snape running as hard as he could, the enormous beast flapping behind him and screeching as Harry had never heard him screech. Harry struggled to his feet, looking around groggily for his wand, hoping to give chase again. But even as his fingers fumbled in the grass, discarding twigs, he knew it would be too late. And sure enough, by the time he had located his wand, he turned only to see the hippogriff circling the gates. Snape had managed to disapparate just beyond the school's boundaries. Hagrid, muttered Harry, still dazed, looking around. Hagrid! He stumbled toward the burning house as an enormous figure emerged from out of the flames carrying Fang on his back. With a cry of thankfulness, Harry sank to his knees. He was shaking in every limb, his body ached all over, and his breath came in painful stabs. You all right, Harry? You all right? Speak to me, Harry! Hagrid's huge, hairy face was swimming above Harry, blocking out the stars. Harry could smell burnt wood and dog hair. He put out a hand and felt Fang's reassuringly warm and alive body quivering beside him. I'm all right, panted Harry. Are you? Course I am. Take more than that to finish me. Hagrid put his hands under Harry's arms and raised him up with such force that Harry's feet momentarily left the ground before Hagrid set him upright again. He could see blood trickling down Hagrid's cheek from a deep cut under one eye, which was swelling rapidly. We should put out your house, said Harry. The charm's aguamenti. No, it was somewhat like that, mumbled Hagrid, and he raised a smoldering pink flowery umbrella and said, Aguamenti. A jet of water flew out of the umbrella tip. Harry raised his wand arm, which felt like lead, and murmured, Aguamenti, too. 
Together, he and Hagrid poured water on the house until the last flame was extinguished. It's not too bad, said Hagrid hopefully a few minutes later, looking at the smoking wreck. Nothing Dumbledore won't be able to put right. Harry felt a searing pain in his stomach at the sound of the name. In the silence and the stillness, horror rose inside him. Hagrid? I was binding up a couple of bow chuckle legs when I heard him coming, said Hagrid sadly, still staring at his wrecked cabin. They'll have been burnt to twigs, poor little things. Hagrid? But what happened, Harry? I just saw them Death Eaters running down from the castle. But what the ruddy hell was Snape doing with them? Where's he gone? Was he chasing them? He, Harry cleared his throat. It was dry from panic and the smoke. Hagrid, he killed. Killed? Said Hagrid loudly, staring down at Harry. Snape killed? What are you on about, Harry? Dumbledore, said Harry. Snape killed Dumbledore. Hagrid simply looked at him, the little of his face that could be seen, completely blank, uncomprehending. Dumbledore what, Harry? He's dead. Snape killed him. Don't say that, said Hagrid roughly. Snape killed Dumbledore? Don't be stupid, Harry. What's made you say that? I saw it happen. Yeah, couldn't have. I saw it, Hagrid. Hagrid shook his head. His expression was disbelieving but sympathetic, and Harry knew that Hagrid thought he had sustained a blow to the head, that he was confused perhaps by the after-effects of a jinx. What must have happened was Dumbledore must have told Snape to go with them Death Eaters, Hagrid said confidently. I suppose he's got to keep his cover. Look, let's get you back up to the school. Come on, Harry. Harry did not attempt to argue or explain. He was still shaking uncontrollably. Hagrid would find out soon enough, too soon. As they directed their steps back toward the castle, Harry saw that many of its windows were lit now. He could imagine clearly the scenes inside as people moved from room to room, telling each other that Death Eaters had got in, that the mark was shining over Hogwarts, that somebody must have been killed. The oak front doors stood open ahead of them, light flooding out onto the drive and the lawn. Slowly, uncertainly, dressing-gowned people were creeping down the steps, looking around nervously for some sign of the Death Eaters who had fled into the night. Harry's eyes, however, were fixed upon the ground at the foot of the tallest tower. He imagined that he could see a black, huddled mass lying in the grass there, though he was really too far away to see anything of the sort. Even as he stared wordlessly at the place where he thought Dumbledore's body must lie, however, he saw people beginning to move toward it. What are they all looking at? said Hagrid, as he and Harry approached the castle front, Fang keeping as close as he could to their ankles. What's that, lying on the grass? Hagrid added sharply, heading now toward the foot of the astronomy tower, where a small crowd was congregating. See it, Harry? Right at the foot of the tower, under where the mark... Blimey, you don't think someone got thrown? Hagrid fell silent. The thought, apparently too horrible to express aloud. Harry walked alongside him, feeling the aches and pains in his face and his legs, where the various hexes of the last half hour had hit him.
though in an oddly detached way, as though somebody near him was suffering them. What was real and inescapable was the awful pressing feeling in his chest. He and Hagrid moved, dreamlike, through the murmuring crowd to the very front, where the dumbstruck students and teachers had left a gap. Harry heard Hagrid's moan of pain and shock, but he did not stop. He walked slowly forward until he reached the place where Dumbledore lay and crouched down beside him. He had known there was no hope from the moment that the full body-bind curse Dumbledore had placed upon him lifted, known that it could have happened only because its caster was dead. But there was still no preparation for seeing him here, spread-eagled, broken, the greatest wizard Harry had ever, or would ever, meet. Dumbledore's eyes were closed, but for the strange angle of his arms and legs, he might have been sleeping. Harry reached out, straightened the half-moon spectacles upon the crooked nose, and wiped a trickle of blood from the mouth with his own sleeve. Then he gazed down at the wise old face and tried to absorb the enormous and incomprehensible truth that never again would Dumbledore speak to him. Never again could he help. The crowd murmured behind Harry. After what seemed like a long time, he became aware that he was kneeling upon something hard and looked down. The locket they had managed to steal so many hours before had fallen out of Dumbledore's pocket. It had opened, perhaps due to the force with which it hit the ground, and although he could not feel more shock or horror or sadness than he felt already, Harry knew, as he picked it up, that there was something wrong. He turned the locket over in his hands. This was neither as large as the locket he remembered seeing in the pensive, nor were there any markings upon it, no sign of the ornate S that was supposed to be Slytherin's mark. Moreover, there was nothing inside but for a scrap of folded parchment wedged tightly into the place where a portrait should have been. Automatically, without really thinking about what he was doing, Harry pulled out the fragment of parchment, opened it, and read by the light of the many wands that had now been lit behind him. To the Dark Lord I know I will be dead long before you read this but I want you to know that it was I who discovered your secret. I have stolen the real Horcrux and intend to destroy it as soon as I can. I face death in the hope that when you meet your match, you will be mortal once more. R. A. B. Harry neither knew nor cared what the message meant. Only one thing mattered. This was not a Horcrux. Dumbledore had weakened himself by drinking that terrible potion for nothing. Harry crumpled the parchment in his hand, and his eyes burned with tears as behind him, Fang began to howl. Chapter 29 The Phoenix Lament Come here, Harry. No. He can't stay here, Harry. Come on now. No. He did not want to leave Dumbledore's side. He did not want to move anywhere. Hagrid's hand on his shoulder was trembling. Then another voice said, Harry, come on. A much smaller and warmer hand had enclosed his and was pulling him upward. He obeyed its pressure without really thinking about it. Only as he walked blindly back through the crowd did he realize from a trace of flowery scent on the air that it was Ginny who was leading him back into the castle. 
Incomprehensible voices battered him. Sobs and shouts and wails stabbed the night. But Harry and Ginny walked on, back up the steps into the entrance hall. Faces swam on the edges of Harry's vision. People were peering at him, whispering, wondering, and Gryffindor rubies glistened on the floor like drops of blood as they made their way toward the marble staircase. We're going to the hospital wing, said Ginny. I'm not hurt, said Harry. It's McGonagall's orders, said Ginny. Everyone's up there, Ron and Hermione and Lupin and everyone. Fear stirred in Harry's chest again. He had forgotten the inert figures he had left behind. Ginny, who else is dead? Don't worry, none of us. But the dark mark, Malfoy said he stepped over a body. He stepped over Bill. But it's all right, he's alive. There was something in her voice, however, that Harry knew boded ill. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. He's a, a bit of a mess, that's all. Greyback attacked him. Madame Pomfrey says he won't, won't look the same anymore. Ginny's voice trembled a little. We don't really know what the after-effects will be. I mean, Greyback being a werewolf, but not transformed at the time. But the others... There were other bodies on the ground. Neville and Professor Flitwick are both hurt, but Madame Pomfrey says they'll be all right. And a Death Eater's dead. He got hit by a killing curse that huge blonde one was firing off everywhere. Harry, if we hadn't had your Felix potion, I think we'd all have been killed. But everything seemed to just miss us. They had reached the hospital wing. Pushing open the doors, Harry saw Neville lying, apparently asleep, in a bed near the door. Ron, Hermione, Luna, Tonks, and Lupin were gathered around another bed near the far end of the ward. At the sound of the doors opening, they all looked up. Hermione ran to Harry and hugged him. Lupin moved forward, too, looking anxious. Are you all right, Harry? I'm fine. How's Bill? Nobody answered. Harry looked over Hermione's shoulder and saw an unrecognizable face lying on Bill's pillow, so badly slashed and ripped that he looked grotesque. Madame Pomfrey was dabbing at his wounds with some harsh-smelling green ointment. Harry remembered how Snape had mended Malfoy's sectumsempra wounds so easily with his wand. Can't you fix them with a charm or something? he asked the matron. No charm will work on these, said Madame Pomfrey. I've tried everything I know, but there is no cure for werewolf bites. But he wasn't bitten at the full moon, said Ron, who was gazing down into his brother's face as though he could somehow force him to mend just by staring. Crayback hadn't transformed, so surely Bill won't be a, a real. He looked uncertainly at Lupin. No, I don't think that Bill will be a true werewolf, said Lupin. But that does not mean that there won't be some contamination. Those are cursed wounds. They are unlikely ever to heal fully, and... And Bill might have some wolfish characteristics from now on. Dumbledore might know something that'd work, though, Ron said. Where is he? Bill fought those maniacs on Dumbledore's orders. Dumbledore owes him. He can't leave him in this state. Ron, Dumbledore's dead, said Ginny. No! Lupin looked wildly from Ginny to Harry, as though hoping the latter might contradict her. But when Harry did not, Lupin collapsed into a chair beside Bill's bed, his hands over his face. Harry had never seen Lupin lose control before. 
He felt as though he was intruding upon something private, indecent. He turned away and caught Ron's eye instead, exchanging in silence a look that confirmed what Ginny had said. How did he die? whispered Tonks. How did it happen? Snape killed him, said Harry. I was there. I saw it. We arrived back on the astronomy tower because that's where the mark was. Dumbledore was ill, he was weak, but I think he realized it was a trap when we heard footsteps running up the stairs. He immobilized me, I couldn't do anything. I was under the invisibility cloak, and then Malfoy came through the door and disarmed him. Hermione clapped her hands to her mouth, and Ron groaned. Luna's mouth trembled. More Death Eaters arrived, and then Snape. And Snape did it. The Avada Kedavra. Harry couldn't go on. Madame Pomfrey burst into tears. Nobody paid her any attention except Ginny, who whispered, Shh, listen. Gulping, Madame Pomfrey pressed her fingers to her mouth, her eyes wide. Somewhere out in the darkness, a phoenix was singing in a way Harry had never heard before, a stricken lament of terrible beauty. And Harry felt, as he had felt about Phoenix song before, that the music was inside him, not without. It was his own grief turned magically to song that echoed across the grounds and through the castle windows. How long they all stood there listening he did not know, nor why it seemed to ease their pain a little to listen to the sound of their mourning. But it felt like a long time later that the hospital door opened again and Professor McGonagall entered the ward. Like all the rest, she bore marks of the recent battle. There were grazes on her face and her robes were ripped. Molly and Arthur are on their way, she said, and the spell of the music was broken. Everyone roused themselves as though coming out of trances, turning again to look at Bill, or else to rub their own eyes, shake their heads. Harry, what happened? According to Hagrid, you were with Professor Dumbledore when he... when it happened. He says Professor Snape was involved in some... Snape killed Dumbledore, said Harry. She stared at him for a moment, then swayed alarmingly. Madame Pomfrey, who seemed to have pulled herself together, ran forward, conjuring a chair from thin air, which she pushed under McGonagall. Snape, repeated McGonagall faintly, falling into the chair. We all wondered, but he trusted, always. Snape? I can't believe it. Snape was a highly accomplished Ocklemans, said Lupin, his voice uncharacteristically harsh. We always knew that. But Dumbledore swore he was on our side, whispered Tonks. I always thought Dumbledore must know something about Snape that we didn't. He always hinted that he had an ironclad reason for trusting Snape, muttered Professor McGonagall, now dabbing at the corners of her leaking eyes with a tartan-edged handkerchief. I mean, with Snape's history. Of course, people were bound to wonder, but Dumbledore told me explicitly that Snape's repentance was absolutely genuine. Wouldn't hear a word against him. I'd love to know what Snape told him to convince him, said Tonks. I know, said Harry, and they all turned to look at him. Snape passed Voldemort the information that made Voldemort hunt down my mum and dad. Then Snape told Dumbledore he hadn't realized what he was doing. He was really sorry he'd done it, sorry that they were dead. They all stared at him. 
And Dumbledore believed that, said Lupin incredulously. Dumbledore believed Snape was sorry James was dead. Snape hated James. And he didn't think my mother was worth a damn either, said Harry, because she was muggle-born. Mudblood, he called her. Nobody asked how Harry knew this. All of them seemed to be lost in horrified shock, trying to digest the monstrous truth of what had happened. This is all my fault, said Professor McGonagall suddenly. She looked disoriented, twisting her wet handkerchief in her hands. My fault! I sent Phileas to fetch Snape tonight. I actually sent for him to come and help us. If I hadn't alerted Snape to what was going on, he might never have joined forces with the Death Eaters. I don't think he knew they were there before Phileas told him. I don't think he knew they were coming. It isn't your fault, Minerva, said Lupin firmly. We all wanted more help. We were glad to think Snape was on his way. So when he arrived at the fight, he joined in on the Death Eater's side? asked Harry, who wanted every detail of Snape's duplicity and infamy, feverishly collecting more reasons to hate him, to swear vengeance. I don't know exactly how it happened, said Professor McGonagall distractedly. It's all so confusing. Dumbledore had told us that he would be leaving the school for a few hours and that we were to patrol the corridors just in case. Remus, Bill, and Nymphadora were to join us, and so we patrolled. All seemed quiet. Every secret passageway out of the school was covered. We knew nobody could fly in. There were powerful enchantments on every entrance into the castle. I still don't know how the Death Eaters can possibly have entered. I do, said Harry, and he explained briefly about the pair of vanishing cabinets and the magical pathway they formed. So they got in through the room of requirement. Almost against his will, he glanced from Ron to Hermione, both of whom looked devastated. I messed up, Harry, said Ron bleakly. We did like you told us. We checked the Marauder's map and we couldn't see Malfoy on it. So we thought he must be in the room of requirement, so me, Ginny, and Neville went to keep watch on it. But Malfoy got past us. He came out of the room about an hour after we started keeping watch, said Ginny. He was on his own, clutching that awful shriveled arm. His hand of glory, said Ron, gives light only to the holder, remember? Anyway, Ginny went on, he must have been checking whether the coast was clear to let the Death Eaters out, because the moment he saw us, he threw something into the air, and it all went pitch black. Peruvian instant darkness powder, said Ron bitterly. Fred and George's. I'm gonna be having a word with them about who they let buy their products. We tried everything, Lumos, Incendio, said Ginny. Nothing would penetrate the darkness. All we could do was grope our way out of the corridor again, and meanwhile we could hear people rushing past us. Obviously Malfoy could see because of that hand thing and was guiding them, but we didn't dare use any curses or anything in case we hit each other, and by the time we'd reached a corridor that was light, they'd gone. Luckily, said Lupin hoarsely, Ron, Ginny, and Neville ran into us almost immediately and told us what had happened. We found the Death Eaters minutes later heading in the direction of the Astronomy Tower. Malfoy obviously hadn't expected more people to be on the watch. He seemed to have exhausted his supply of darkness powder at any rate. A fight broke out. They scattered and we gave chase. One of them, Gibbon, broke away and headed up the tower stairs. To set off the mark? asked Harry. He must have done, yes, 
They must have arranged that before they left the room of requirement, said Lupin. But I don't think Gibbon liked the idea of waiting up there alone for Dumbledore, because he came running back downstairs to rejoin the fight, and was hit by a killing curse that just missed me. So, if Ron was watching the room of requirement with Ginny and Neville, said Harry, turning to Hermione, were you... Outside Snape's office, yes, whispered Hermione, her eyes sparkling with tears. But Luna, we hung around for ages outside it and nothing happened. We didn't know what was going on upstairs. Ron had taken the map. It was nearly midnight when Professor Flitwick came sprinting down into the dungeons. He was shouting about Death Eaters in the castle. I don't think he really registered that Luna and I were there at all. He just burst his way into Snape's office, and we heard him saying that Snape had to go back with him and help, and then we heard a loud thump. And Snape came hurtling out of his room, and he saw us, and... and... What? Harry urged her. I was so stupid, Harry, said Hermione in a high-pitched whisper. He said Professor Flitwick had collapsed, and that we should go and take care of him while he while he went to help fight the Death Eaters. She covered her face in shame and continued to talk into her fingers so that her voice was muffled. We went into his office to see if we could help Professor Flitwick and found him unconscious on the floor. And oh, it's so obvious now. Snape must have stupefied Flitwick. But we didn't realize, Harry. We didn't realize. We just let Snape go. It's not your fault, said Lupin firmly. Hermione, had you not obeyed Snape and got out of the way, he probably would have killed you and Luna. So then he came upstairs, said Harry, who was watching Snape running up the marble staircase in his mind's eye, his black robes billowing behind him as ever, pulling his wand from under his cloak as he ascended, and he found the place where you were all fighting. We were in trouble, we were losing, said Tonks in a low voice. Gibbon was down, but the rest of the Death Eaters seemed ready to fight to the death. Neville had been hurt. Bill had been savaged by Greyback. It was all dark. Curses flying everywhere. The Malfoy boy had vanished. He must have slipped past up the stairs. Then more of them ran after him. But one of them blocked the stair behind them with some kind of curse. Neville ran at it and got thrown up into the air. None of us could break through, said Ron. And that massive Death Eater was still firing off jinxes all over the place. They were bouncing off the walls and barely missing us. And then Snape was there, said Tonks. And then he wasn't. I saw him running toward us, but that huge Death Eater's jinx just missed me right afterward, and I ducked and lost track of things, said Ginny. I saw him run straight through the cursed barrier as though it wasn't there, said Lupin. I tried to follow him but was thrown back just like Neville. He must have known a spell we didn't, whispered McGonagall. After all, he was the defense against the dark arts teacher. I just assumed that he was in a hurry to chase after the Death Eaters who'd escaped up to the tower. He was, said Harry savagely, but to help them, not to stop them. And I'll bet you had to have a dark mark to get through that barrier. So what happened when he came back down? Well, the big Death Eater had just fired off a hex that caused half the ceiling to fall in, and also broke the curse blocking the stairs, said Lupin. We all ran forward, those of us who were still standing anyway, and then Snape and the boy emerged out of the dust. Obviously, none of us attacked them. We just let them pass, said Tonks in a hollow voice. 
We thought they were being chased by the Death Eaters, and next thing, the other Death Eaters and Greyback were back, and we were fighting again. I thought I heard Snape shout something, but I don't know what. He shouted, It's over, said Harry. He'd done what he'd meant to do. They all fell silent. Fawkes' lament was still echoing over the dark grounds outside. As the music reverberated upon the air, unbidden, unwelcome thoughts slunk into Harry's mind. Had they taken Dumbledore's body from the foot of the tower yet? What would happen to it next? Where would it rest? He clenched his fists tightly in his pockets. He could feel the small, cold lump of the fake Horcrux against the knuckles of his right hand. The doors of the hospital wing burst open, making them all jump. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley were striding up the ward, Fleur just behind them, her beautiful face terrified. Molly, Arthur, said Professor McGonagall, jumping up and hurrying to greet them. I am so sorry. Bill, whispered Mrs. Weasley, darting past Professor McGonagall as she caught sight of Bill's mangled face. Oh, Bill. Lupin and Tonks had got up hastily and retreated so that Mr. and Mrs. Weasley could get nearer to the bed. Mrs. Weasley bent over her son and pressed her lips to his bloody forehead. You said Greyback attacked him? Mr. Weasley asked Professor McGonagall distractedly. But he hadn't transformed. So what does that mean? What will happen to Bill? We don't yet know, said Professor McGonagall, looking helplessly at Lupin. There will probably be some contamination, Arthur, said Lupin. It is an odd case, possibly unique. We don't know what his behavior might be like when he awakens. Mrs. Weasley took the nasty-smelling ointment from Madame Pomfrey and began dabbing at Bill's wounds. And, uh, Dumbledore, said Mr. Weasley. Minerva, is it true? Is he really? As Professor McGonagall nodded, Harry felt Ginny move beside him and looked at her. Her slightly narrowed eyes were fixed upon Fleur, who was gazing down at Bill with a frozen expression on her face. Dumbledore gone, whispered Mr. Weasley. But Mrs. Weasley had eyes only for her eldest son. She began to sob, tears falling onto Bill's mutilated face. Of course, it doesn't matter how he looks. It's not really important. But he was a very handsome little b boy, always very handsome, and he was g going to be married. And what do you mean by that? said Fleur suddenly and loudly. What do you mean he was going to be married? Mrs. Weasley raised her tear-stained face, looking startled. Well, only that. You think Bill will not wish to marry me any more? demanded Fleur. You think... Because of these bites, he will not love me? No, that's not what I... Because he will, said Fleur, drawing herself up to her full height and throwing back her long mane of silver hair. It will take more than a werewolf to stop Bill loving me. Well, yes, I'm sure, said Mrs. Weasley. But I thought, perhaps, given how... how he... You thought I would not wish to marry him? Or perhaps you hoped said Fleur, her nostrils flaring. What do I care how he looks? I am good-looking enough for both of us, I think. All these scars show is that my husband is brave. 
and I shall do that, she added fiercely, pushing Mrs. Weasley aside and snatching the ointment from her. Mrs. Weasley fell back against her husband and watched Fleur mopping up Bill's wounds with the most curious expression upon her face. Nobody said anything. Harry did not dare move. Like everybody else, he was waiting for the explosion. Our great Auntie Muriel, said Mrs. Weasley after a long pause, has a very beautiful tiara, goblin made, which I am sure I could persuade her to lend you for the wedding. She is very fond of Bill, you know, and it would look lovely with your hair. Thank you, said Fleur stiffly. I am sure that will be lovely. And then Harry did not quite see how it happened. Both women were crying and hugging each other. Completely bewildered, wondering whether the world had gone mad, he turned around. Ron looked as stunned as he felt, and Ginny and Hermione were exchanging startled looks. You see, said a strained voice. Tonks was glaring at Lupin. She still wants to marry him, even though he's been bitten. She doesn't care. It's different said Lupin, barely moving his lips and looking suddenly tense. Bill will not be a full werewolf. The cases are completely... But I don't care, either. I don't care, said Tonks, seizing the front of Lupin's robes and shaking them. I've told you a million times. And the meaning of Tonks's Patronus and her mouse-colored hair, and the reason she had come running to find Dumbledore when she had heard a rumor someone had been attacked by Greyback all suddenly became clear to Harry. It had not been serious that Tonks had fallen in love with, after all. And I've told you a million times, said Lupin, refusing to meet her eyes, staring at the floor, that I am too old for you, too poor, too dangerous. I've said all along you're taking a ridiculous line on this, Remus, said Mrs. Weasley over Fleur's shoulder as she patted her on the back. I am not being ridiculous, said Lupin steadily. Tonks deserves somebody young and whole. But she wants you, said Mr. Weasley with a small smile. And after all, Remus, young and whole men do not necessarily remain so. He gestured sadly at his son lying between them. This is not the moment to discuss it said Lupin, avoiding everybody's eyes as he looked around distractedly. Dumbledore is dead. Dumbledore would have been happier than anybody to think that there was a little more love in the world, said Professor McGonagall curtly, just as the hospital doors opened again, and Hagrid walked in. The little of his face that was not obscured by hair or beard was soaking and swollen. He was shaking with tears, a vast spotted handkerchief in his hand. I've... I've done it, Professor, he choked. M moved him. Professor Sprout's got the kids back in bed. Professor Flitwick's lying down. But he says he'll be all right in a jiffy. And Professor Slughorn says the Ministry's been informed. Thank you, Hagrid, said Professor McGonagall, standing up at once and turning to look at the group around Bill's bed. I shall have to see the ministry when they get here. Hagrid, please tell the heads of houses. Slughorn can represent Slytherin, that I want to see them in my office forthwith. I would like you to join us too. As Hagrid nodded, turned, and shuffled out of the room again, she looked down at Harry. 
Before I meet them, I would like a quick word with you, Harry, if you'll come with me. Harry stood up, murmured, See you in a bit, to Ron, Hermione, and Ginny, and followed Professor McGonagall back down the ward. The corridors outside were deserted, and the only sound was the distant Phoenix song. It was several minutes before Harry became aware that they were not heading for Professor McGonagall's office, but for Dumbledore's, and another few seconds before he realized that, of course, she had been deputy headmistress. Apparently, she was now headmistress, so the room behind the gargoyle was now hers. In silence, they ascended the moving spiral staircase and entered the circular office. He did not know what he had expected, that the room would be draped in black, perhaps, or even that Dumbledore's body might be lying there. In fact, it looked almost exactly as it had done when he and Dumbledore had left it mere hours previously. The silver instruments whirring and puffing on their spindle-leg tables, Gryffindor's sword in its glass case gleaming in the moonlight, the sorting hat on a shelf behind the desk. But Fawkes's perch stood empty. He was still crying his lament to the grounds. And a new portrait had joined the ranks of the dead headmasters and headmistresses of Hogwarts. Dumbledore was slumbering in a golden frame over the desk, his half-moon spectacles perched upon his crooked nose, looking peaceful and untroubled. After glancing once at this portrait, Professor McGonagall made an odd movement as though stealing herself, then rounded the desk to look at Harry, her face taut and lined. Harry, she said, I would like to know what you and Professor Dumbledore were doing this evening when you left the school. I can't tell you that, Professor, said Harry. He had expected the question and had his answer ready. It had been here, in this very room, that Dumbledore had told him that he was to confide the contents of their lessons to nobody but Ron and Hermione. Harry, it might be important, said Professor McGonagall. It is, said Harry, very. But he didn't want me to tell anyone. Professor McGonagall glared at him. Potter, Harry registered the renewed use of his surname. In the light of Professor Dumbledore's death, I think you must see that the situation has changed somewhat. I don't think so, said Harry, shrugging. Professor Dumbledore never told me to stop following his orders if he died. But there's one thing you should know before the Ministry gets here, though. Madame Ross Murta's under the Imperious Curse. She was helping Malfoy in the Death Eaters. That's how the necklace and the poison mead. Ross Murta? said Professor McGonagall incredulously. But before she could go on, there was a knock on the door behind them, and Professors Sprout, Flitwick, and Slughorn traipsed into the room, followed by Hagrid, who was still weeping copiously, his huge frame trembling with grief. Snape? ejaculated Slughorn, who looked the most shaken, pale, and sweating. Snape? I taught him. I thought I knew him. But before any of them could respond to this, a sharp voice spoke from high on the wall. A sallow-faced wizard with a short black fringe had just walked back into his empty canvas. Minerva, the minister will be here within seconds. He has just disapparated from the ministry. Thank you, Everard, said Professor McGonagall, and she turned quickly to her teachers. I want to talk about what happens to Hogwarts before he gets here, she said quickly. Personally, I'm not convinced that the school should reopen next year. 
The death of the headmaster at the hands of one of our colleagues is a terrible stain upon Hogwarts history. It is horrible. I am sure Dumbledore would have wanted the school to remain open, said Professor Sprout. I feel that if a single pupil wants to come, then the school ought to remain open for that pupil. But will we have a single pupil after this? said Slughorn, now dabbing his sweating brow with a silken handkerchief. Parents will want to keep their children at home, and I can't say I blame them. Personally, I don't think we're in more danger at Hogwarts than we are anywhere else. But you can't expect mothers to think like that. They'll want to keep their families together. It's only natural. I agree, said Professor McGonagall. And in any case, it is not true to say that Dumbledore never envisaged a situation in which Hogwarts might close. When the Chamber of Secrets reopened, he considered the closure of the school. And I must say that Professor Dumbledore's murder is more disturbing to me than the idea of Slytherin's monster living undetected in the bowels of the castle. We must consult the governors, said Professor Flitwick in his squeaky little voice. He had a large bruise on his forehead, but seemed otherwise unscathed by his collapse in Snape's office. We must follow the established procedures. A decision should not be made hastily. Hagrid, you haven't said anything, said Professor McGonagall. What are your views? Ought Hogwarts to remain open? Hagrid, who had been weeping silently into his large spotted handkerchief throughout this conversation, now raised puffy red eyes and croaked. I don't know, Professor. That's for the heads of house and the headmistress to decide. Professor Dumbledore always valued your views, said Professor McGonagall kindly, and so do I. Well, I'm saying, said Hagrid, fat tears still leaking out of the corners of his eyes and trickling down into his tangled beard. It's me home. It's been me home since I was thirteen. And if there's kids who want me to teach them, I'll do it. But I don't know. Hogwarts without Dumbledore. He gulped and disappeared behind his handkerchief once more, and there was silence. Very well, said Professor McGonagall, glancing out of the window at the grounds, checking to see whether the minister was yet approaching. Then I must agree with Phileas that the right thing to do is to consult the governess who will make the final decision. Now, as to getting students home, there is an argument for doing it sooner rather than later. We could arrange for the Hogwarts Express to come tomorrow if necessary. What about Dumbledore's funeral? said Harry, speaking at last. Well, said Professor McGonagall, losing a little of her briskness as her voice shook. I... I know that it was Dumbledore's wish to be laid to rest here at Hogwarts. Then that's what'll happen, isn't it? said Harry fiercely. If the Ministry thinks it appropriate, said Professor McGonagall, no other headmaster or headmistress has ever been. No other headmaster or headmistress ever gave more to this school, growled Hagrid. Hogwarts should be Dumbledore's final resting place, said Professor Flitwick. Absolutely, said Professor Sprout. And in that case, said Harry, you shouldn't send the students home until the funeral's over. They'll want to say... The last word caught in his throat, 
but Professor Sprout completed the sentence for him. Goodbye. Well said, squeaked Professor Flitwick. Well said indeed. Our students should pay tribute. It is fitting. We can arrange transport home afterward. Seconded, barked Professor Sprout. I suppose, yes, said Slughorn in a rather agitated voice, while Hagrid let out a strangled sob of assent. He's coming, said Professor McGonagall suddenly, gazing down into the grounds. The minister, and by the looks of it, he's brought a delegation. Can I leave, Professor, said Harry at once. He had no desire at all to see or be interrogated by Rufus Scrimgeour tonight. You may, said Professor McGonagall, and quickly. She strode toward the door and held it open for him. He sped down the spiral staircase and off along the deserted corridor. He had left his invisibility cloak at the top of the astronomy tower, but it did not matter. There was nobody in the corridors to see him pass, not even Filch, Mrs. Norris, or Peeves. He did not meet another soul until he turned into the passage leading to the Gryffindor common room. Is it true? whispered the fat lady as he approached her. It is really true, Dumbledore, dead. Yes, said Harry. She let out a wail, and without waiting for the password, swung forward to admit him. As Harry had suspected it would be, the common room was jam-packed. The room fell silent as he climbed through the portrait hall. He saw Dean and Seamus sitting in a group nearby. This meant that the dormitory must be empty, or nearly so. Without speaking to anybody, without making eye contact at all, Harry walked straight across the room and through the door to the boys' dormitories. As he had hoped, Ron was waiting for him, still fully dressed, sitting on his bed. Harry sat down on his own four-poster, and for a moment they simply stared at each other. They're talking about closing the school, said Harry. Lupin said they would, said Ron. There was a pause. So, said Ron, in a very low voice, as though he thought the furniture might be listening in. Did you find one? Did you get it? A horcrux. Harry shook his head. All that had taken place around that black lake seemed like an old nightmare now. Had it really happened, and only hours ago? You didn't get it? said Ron, looking crestfallen. It wasn't there? No, said Harry. Someone had already taken it and left a fake in its place. Already taken? Wordlessly, Harry pulled the fake locket from his pocket, opened it, and passed it to Ron. The full story could wait. It did not matter tonight. Nothing mattered except the end. The end of their pointless adventure. The end of Dumbledore's life. R.A.B.? whispered Ron. But who was that? Dunno, said Harry, lying back on his bed fully clothed and staring blankly upwards. He felt no curiosity at all about R.A.B. He doubted that he would ever feel curious again. As he lay there, he became aware suddenly that the grounds were silent. Forks had stopped singing. And he knew, without knowing how he knew it, that the phoenix had gone, had left Hogwarts for good. Just as Dumbledore had left the school, had left the world, had left Harry. Chapter 30 The White Tomb 
All lessons were suspended, all examinations postponed. Some students were hurried away from Hogwarts by their parents over the next couple of days. The Patil twins were gone before breakfast on the morning following Dumbledore's death, and Zacharias Smith was escorted from the castle by his haughty-looking father. Seamus Finnegan, on the other hand, refused point-blank to accompany his mother home. They had a shouting match in the entrance hall that was resolved when she agreed that he could remain behind for the funeral. She had difficulty in finding a bed in Hogsmeade, Seamus told Harry and Ron, for wizards and witches were pouring into the village, preparing to pay their last respects to Dumbledore. Some excitement was caused among the younger students, who had never seen it before, when a powder-blue carriage the size of a house, pulled by a dozen giant-winged palominos, came soaring out of the sky in the late afternoon before the funeral, and landed on the edge of the forest. Harry watched from a window as a gigantic and handsome, olive-skinned, black-haired woman descended the carriage steps and threw herself into the waiting Hagrid's arms. Meanwhile, a delegation of ministry officials, including the Minister of Magic himself, was being accommodated within the castle. Harry was diligently avoiding contact with any of them. He was sure that sooner or later he would be asked again to account for Dumbledore's last excursion from Hogwarts. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny were spending all of their time together. The beautiful weather seemed to mock them. Harry could imagine how it would have been if Dumbledore had not died, and they had had this time together at the very end of the year. Ginny's examinations finished, the pressure of homework lifted. And hour by hour, he put off saying the thing that he knew he must say, doing what he knew was right to do, because it was too hard to forego his best source of comfort. They visited the hospital wing twice a day. Neville had been discharged, but Bill remained under Madame Pomfrey's care. His scars were as bad as ever. In truth, he now bore a distinct resemblance to Mad-Eye Moody, though thankfully with both eyes and legs. But in personality he seemed just the same as ever. All that appeared to have changed was that he now had a great liking for very rare steaks. So it is lucky he is marrying me said Fleur happily, plumping up Bill's pillows. Because the British overcook their meat, I have always said this. I suppose I'm just going to have to accept that he really is going to marry her, sighed Ginny later that evening, as she, Harry, Ron and Hermione sat beside the open window of the Gryffindor common room, looking out over the twilight grounds. She's not that bad, said Harry. Ugly, though, he added hastily as Ginny raised her eyebrows and she let out a reluctant giggle. Well, I suppose if Mum can stand it, I can. Anyone else we know died? Ron asked Hermione, who was perusing the evening prophet. Hermione winced at the forced toughness in his voice. No, she said reprovingly, folding up the newspaper. They're still looking for Snape, but no sign. Of course there isn't, said Harry, who became angry every time this subject cropped up. They won't find Snape till they find Voldemort, and seeing as they've never managed to do that in all this time. I'm going to go to bed, yawned Ginny. I haven't been sleeping that well since, well, I could do with some sleep. She kissed Harry, Ron looked away pointedly, waved at the other two, and departed for the girls' dormitories. The moment the door had closed behind her, Hermione leaned forward toward Harry, with a most Hermione-ish look on her face. Harry, 
I found something out this morning in the library. R.A.B., said Harry, sitting up straight. He did not feel the way he had so often felt before, excited, curious, burning to get to the bottom of a mystery. He simply knew that the task of discovering the truth about the real Horcrux had to be completed before he could move a little farther along the dark and winding path stretching ahead of him, the path that he and Dumbledore had set out upon together, and which he now knew he would have to journey alone. There might still be as many as four Horcruxes out there somewhere, and each would need to be found and eliminated before there was even a possibility that Voldemort could be killed. He kept reciting their names to himself, as though by listing them he could bring them within reach. The locket, the cup, the snake, something of Gryffindor's or Ravenclaw's. The locket, the cup, the snake, something of Gryffindor's or Ravenclaw's. This mantra seemed to pulse through Harry's mind as he fell asleep at night, and his dreams were thick with cups, lockets, and mysterious objects that he could not quite reach, though Dumbledore helpfully offered Harry a rope ladder that turned to snakes the moment he began to climb. He had shown Hermione the note inside the locket the morning after Dumbledore's death, and although she had not immediately recognized the initials as belonging to some obscure wizard about whom she had been reading— she has since been rushing off to the library a little more often than was strictly necessary for somebody who had no homework to do. No, she said sadly. I've been trying, Harry, but I haven't found anything. There are a couple of reasonably well-known wizards with those initials. Rosalind Antigone Bungs, Rupert Axebanger Brooke Stanton, but they don't seem to fit at all. Judging by that note, the person who stole the Horcrux knew Voldemort and I can't find a shred of evidence that Bungs or Axe Banger ever had anything to do with him. No, actually, it's about, well, Snape. She looked nervous, even saying the name again. What about him? asked Harry heavily, slumping back in his chair. Well, it's just that I was sort of right about the Half-Blood Prince business, she said tentatively. Do you have to rub it in, Hermione? How do you think I feel about that now? No, no, Harry, I didn't mean that, she said hastily, looking around to check that they were not being overheard. It's just that I was right about Eileen Prince once owning the book. You see, she was Snape's mother. I thought she wasn't much of a looker, said Ron. Hermione ignored him. I was going through the rest of the old prophets, and there was a tiny announcement about Eileen Prince marrying a man called Tobias Snape, and then later an announcement saying that she'd given birth to a murderer, spat Harry. Well, yes, said Hermione, so I was sort of right. Snape must have been proud of being half a prince, you see. Tobias Snape was a muggle, from what it said in the prophet. Yeah. That fits, said Harry. He'd play up the pure blood side so he could get in with Lucius Malfoy and the rest of them. He's just like Voldemort, pure blood mother, muggle father, ashamed of his parentage, trying to make himself feared using the dark arts, gave himself an impressive new name, Lord Voldemort. The half-blood prince. How could Dumbledore have missed? He broke off, looking out the window. He could not stop himself dwelling upon Dumbledore's inexcusable trust in Snape. But as Hermione had just inadvertently reminded him, he, Harry, had been taken in just the same. 
In spite of the increasing nastiness of those scribbled spells, he had refused to believe ill of the boy who had been so clever, who had helped him so much. Helped him? It was an almost unendurable thought now. I still don't get why he didn't turn you in for using that book, said Ron. He must have known where you were getting it all from. He knew, said Harry bitterly. He knew when I used Sectum Sempra. He didn't really need legilimency. He might even have known before then, with Slughorn talking about how brilliant I was at potions. Shouldn't have left his old book in the bottom of that cupboard, should he? But why didn't he turn you in? I don't think he wanted to associate himself with that book, said Hermione. I don't think Dumbledore would have liked it very much if he'd known. And even if Snape pretended it hadn't been his, Slughorn would have recognized his writing at once. Anyway, the book was left in Snape's old classroom, and I'll bet Dumbledore knew his mother was called Prince. I should have shown the book to Dumbledore, said Harry. All that time he was showing me how Voldemort was evil, even when he was at school, and I had proof Snape was too. Evil is a strong word said Hermione quietly. You were the one who kept telling me the book was dangerous. I'm trying to say, Harry, that you're putting too much blame on yourself. I thought the prince seemed to have a nasty sense of humor, but I would never have guessed he was a potential killer. None of us could have guessed Snape would, you know, said Ron. Silence fell between them, each of them lost in their own thoughts, but Harry was sure that they, like him, were thinking about the following morning, when Dumbledore's body would be laid to rest. He had never attended a funeral before. There had been no body to bury when Sirius had died. He did not know what to expect, and was a little worried about what he might see, about how he would feel. He wondered whether Dumbledore's death would be more real to him once it was over. Though he had moments when the horrible fact of it threatened to overwhelm him, there were blank stretches of numbness where, despite the fact that nobody was talking about anything else in the whole castle, he still found it difficult to believe that Dumbledore had really gone. Admittedly, he had not, as he had with Sirius, looked desperately for some kind of loophole, some way that Dumbledore would come back. He felt in his pocket for the cold chain of the fake Horcrux, which he now carried with him everywhere, not as a talisman, but as a reminder of what it had cost and what remained still to do. Harry rose early to pack the next day. The Hogwarts Express would be leaving an hour after the funeral. Downstairs he found the mood in the great hall subdued. Everybody was wearing their dress robes, and no one seemed very hungry. Professor McGonagall had left the throne-like chair in the middle of the staff table empty. Hagrid's chair was deserted, too. Harry thought that perhaps he had not been able to face breakfast. But Snape's place had been unceremoniously filled by Rufus Scrimgeour. Harry avoided his yellowish eyes as they scanned the hall. Harry had the uncomfortable feeling that Scrimgeour was looking for him. Among Scrimgeour's entourage, Harry spotted the red hair and horn-rimmed glasses of Percy Weasley. Ron gave no sign that he was aware of Percy, apart from stabbing pieces of kipper with unwanted venom. Over at the Slytherin table, Crab and Goyle were muttering together. Hulking boys though they were, they looked oddly lonely without the tall, pale figure of Malfoy between them, bossing them around. Harry had not spared Malfoy much thought. His animosity was all for Snape, 
But he had not forgotten the fear in Malfoy's voice on that tower top, nor the fact that he had lowered his wand before the other Death Eaters arrived. Harry did not believe that Malfoy would have killed Dumbledore. He despised Malfoy still for his infatuation with the Dark Arts, but now the tiniest drop of pity mingled with his dislike. Where, Harry wondered, was Malfoy now? And what was Voldemort making him do under threat of killing him and his parents? Harry's thoughts were interrupted by a nudge in the ribs from Ginny. Professor McGonagall had risen to her feet, and the mournful hum in the hall died away at once. It is nearly time, she said. Please follow your heads of houses out into the grounds. Gryffindors, after me. They filed out from behind their benches in near silence. Harry glimpsed Slughorn at the head of the Slytherin column, wearing magnificent long emerald green robes embroidered with silver. He had never seen Professor Sprout, head of the Hufflepuffs, looking so clean. There was not a single patch on her hat, and when they reached the entrance hall, they found Madame Pince standing beside Filch, she in a thick black veil that fell to her knees, he in an ancient black suit and tie, reeking of mothballs. They were heading, as Harry saw, when he stepped out onto the stone steps from the front doors toward the lake. The warmth of the sun caressed his face as they followed Professor McGonagall in silence to the place where hundreds of chairs had been set out in rows. An aisle ran down the center of them. There was a marble table standing at the front, all chairs facing it. It was the most beautiful summer's day. An extraordinary assortment of people had already settled into half of the chairs, shabby and smart, old and young. Most Harry did not recognize, but a few he did, including members of the Order of the Phoenix, Kingsley Shacklebolt, Mad-Eye Moody, Tonks, her hair miraculously returned to vividest pink, Remus Lupin, with whom she seemed to be holding hands, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, Bill, supported by Fleur and followed by Fred and George, who were wearing jackets of black dragon skin. Then there was Madame Maxime, who took up two and a half chairs on her own, Tom, the landlord of the Leaky Cauldron in London, Arabella Fig, Harry's squib neighbor, the hairy bass player from the wizarding group The Weird Sisters, Ernie Prang, driver of the night bus, Madame Malkin of the robe shop in Diagon Alley, and some people whom Harry merely knew by sight, such as the barman of the Hogshead and the witch who pushed the trolley on the Hogwarts Express. The castle ghosts were there too, barely visible in the bright sunlight, discernible only when they moved, shimmering, insubstantially on the gleaming air. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny filed into seats at the end of a row beside the lake. People were whispering to each other. It sounded like a breeze in the grass, but the bird's song was louder by far. The crowd continued to swell. With a great rush of affection for both of them, Harry saw Neville being helped into a seat by Luna. Neville and Luna alone of the D.A. had responded to Hermione's summons the night that Dumbledore had died, and Harry knew why. They were the ones who had missed the D.A. most, probably the ones who had checked their coins regularly in the hope that there would be another meeting. Cornelius Fudge walked past toward the front rows, his expression miserable, twirling his green bowler hat as usual. Harry next recognized Rita Skeeter, who he was infuriated to see, had a notebook clutched in her red-taloned hand, and then, with a worse jolt of fury, 
Dolores Umbridge, an unconvincing expression of grief upon her toad-like face, a black velvet bow set atop her iron-colored curls. At the sight of the centaur Ferenzi, who was standing like a sentinel near the water's edge, she gave a start and scurried hastily into a seat a good distance away. The staff was seated at last. Harry could see Scrimjaw looking grave and dignified in the front row with Professor McGonagall. He wondered whether Scrimjaw or any of these important people were really sorry that Dumbledore was dead. But then he heard music, strange, otherworldly music, and he forgot his dislike of the ministry in looking around for the source of it. He was not the only one. Many heads were turning, searching, a little alarmed. In there, whispered Ginny in Harry's ear, and he saw them in the clear green sunlit water, inches below the surface, reminding him horribly of the Inferi. A chorus of merpeople singing in a strange language he did not understand, their pallid faces rippling, their purplish hair flowing all around them. The music made the hair on Harry's neck stand up, and yet it was not unpleasant. It spoke very clearly of loss and of despair. As he looked down into the wild faces of the singers, he had the feeling that they at least were sorry for Dumbledore's passing. Then Ginny nudged him again, and he looked around. Hagrid was walking slowly up the aisle between the chairs. He was crying quite silently, his face gleaming with tears, and in his arms, wrapped in purple velvet spangled with golden stars, was what Harry knew to be Dumbledore's body. A sharp pain rose in Harry's throat at this sight. For a moment, the strange music and the knowledge that Dumbledore's body was so close seemed to take all warmth from the day. Ron looked white and shocked. Tears were falling thick and fast into both Ginny's and Hermione's laps. They could not see clearly what was happening at the front. Hagrid seemed to have placed the body carefully upon the table. Now he retreated down the aisle, blowing his nose with loud trumpeting noises that drew scandalized looks from some, including, Harry saw, Dolores Umbridge. But Harry knew that Dumbledore would not have cared. He tried to make a friendly gesture to Hagrid as he passed, but Hagrid's eyes were so swollen it was a wonder he could see where he was going. Harry glanced at the back row to which Hagrid was heading and realized what was guiding him. For there, dressed in a jacket and trousers each the size of a small marquee, was the giant Grawp, his great ugly boulder-like head bowed, docile, almost human. Hagrid sat down next to his half-brother, and Grawp patted Hagrid hard on the head so that his chair legs sank into the ground. Harry had a wonderful momentary urge to laugh, but then the music stopped, and he turned to face the front again. A little tufty-haired man in plain black robes had got to his feet and stood now in front of Dumbledore's body. Harry could not hear what he was saying. Odd words floated back to them over the hundreds of heads. Nobility of spirit, intellectual contribution, greatness of heart. It did not mean very much. It had little to do with Dumbledore as Harry had known him. He suddenly remembered Dumbledore's idea of a few words. Nitwit. Oddment, blubber, and tweak, and again had to suppress a grin. What was the matter with him? There was a soft splashing noise to his left, and he saw that the mer people had broken the surface to listen to. 
He remembered Dumbledore crouching at the water's edge two years ago, very close to where Harry now sat, and conversing in Mermish with the Merchieftainess. Harry wondered where Dumbledore had learned Mermish. There was so much he had never asked him, so much he should have said. And then, without warning, it swept over him, the dreadful truth, more completely and undeniably than it had until now. Dumbledore was dead. Gone. He clutched the cold locket in his hands so tightly that it hurt, but he could not prevent hot tears spilling from his eyes. He looked away from Ginny and the others and stared out over the lake toward the forest as the little man in black droned on. There was movement among the trees. The centaurs had come to pay their respects, too. They did not move into the open, but Harry saw them standing quite still, half hidden in shadow, watching the wizards, their bows hanging at their sides. And Harry remembered his first nightmarish trip into the forest, the first time he had ever encountered the thing that was then Voldemort, and how he had faced him, and how he and Dumbledore had discussed fighting a losing battle not long thereafter. It was important, Dumbledore said, to fight, and fight again, and keep fighting, for only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. And Harry saw very clearly as he sat there under the hot sun how people who cared about him had stood in front of him one by one, his mother, his father, his godfather, and finally Dumbledore, all determined to protect him. But now that was over. He could not let anybody else stand between him and Voldemort. He must abandon forever the illusion he ought to have lost at the age of one, that the shelter of a parent's arms meant that nothing could hurt him. There was no waking from his nightmare, no comforting whisper in the dark that he was safe, really, that it was all in his imagination. The last and greatest of his protectors had died, and he was more alone than he had ever been before. The little man in black had stopped speaking at last and resumed his seat. Harry waited for somebody else to get to their feet. He expected speeches, probably from the minister, but nobody moved. Then several people screamed. Bright white flames had erupted around Dumbledore's body and the table upon which it lay. Higher and higher they rose, obscuring the body. White smoke spiraled into the air and made strange shapes. Harry thought for one heart-stopping moment that he saw a phoenix fly joyfully into the blue, but next second the fire had vanished. In its place was a white marble tomb, encasing Dumbledore's body and the table on which he had rested. There were a few more cries of shock as a shower of arrows soared through the air, but they fell far short of the crowd. It was, Harry knew, the centaur's tribute. He saw them turn tail and disappear back into the cool trees. Likewise, the mer-people sank slowly back into the green water and were lost from view. Harry looked at Ginny, Ron, and Hermione. Ron's face was screwed up as though the sunlight were blinding him. Hermione's face was glazed with tears, but Ginny was no longer crying. She met Harry's gaze with the same hard, blazing look that he had seen when she had hugged him after winning the Quidditch Cup in his absence, and he knew that at that moment they understood each other perfectly, and that when he told her what he was going to do now, she would not say, be careful, or don't do it, but accept his decision, 
because she would not have expected anything less of him. And so he steeled himself to say what he had known he must say ever since Dumbledore had died. Ginny, listen, he said very quietly, as the buzz of conversation grew louder around them and people began to get to their feet. I can't be involved with you any more. We've got to stop seeing each other. We can't be together. She said, with an oddly twisted smile, It's for some stupid, noble reason, isn't it? It's been like, like something out of someone else's life these last few weeks with you, said Harry. But I can't. We can't. I've got things to do alone now. She did not cry. She simply looked at him. Voldemort uses people his enemies are close to. He's already used you as bait once, and that was just because you're my best friend's sister. Think how much danger you'll be in if we keep this up. He'll know. He'll find out. He'll try and get to me through you. What if I don't care? said Ginny fiercely. I care, said Harry. How do you think I'd feel if this was your funeral and it was my fault? She looked away from him over the lake. I never really gave up on you, she said. Not really. I always hoped. Hermione told me to get on with life, maybe go out with some other people, relax a bit around you, because I never used to be able to talk if you were in the room, remember? And she thought you might take a bit more notice if I was a bit more myself. Smart girl, that Hermione, said Harry, trying to smile. I just wish I'd asked you sooner. We could have had ages, months, years, maybe. But you've been too busy saving the wizarding world, said Ginny, half laughing. Well, I can't say I'm surprised. I knew this would happen in the end. I knew you wouldn't be happy unless you were hunting Voldemort. Maybe that's why I like you so much. Harry could not bear to hear these things, nor did he think his resolution would hold if he remained sitting beside her. Ron, he saw, was now holding Hermione and stroking her hair while she sobbed into his shoulder, tears dripping from the end of his own long nose. With a miserable gesture, Harry got up, turned his back on Ginny and on Dumbledore's tomb, and walked away around the lake. Moving felt much more bearable than sitting still just as setting out as soon as possible to track down the Horcruxes and kill Voldemort would feel better than waiting to do it. Harry! He turned. Rufus Scrimjaw was limping rapidly toward him around the bank, leaning on his walking stick. I've been hoping to have a word. Do you mind if I walk a little way with you? No, said Harry indifferently, and set off again. Harry... This was a dreadful tragedy, said Scrimjaw quietly. I cannot tell you how appalled I was to hear of it. Dumbledore was a very great wizard. We had our disagreements, as you know, but no one knows better than I. What do you want? asked Harry flatly. Scrimjaw looked annoyed, but as before, hastily modified his expression to one of sorrowful understanding. You are, of course, devastated, he said. I know that you were very close to Dumbledore. I think you may have been his favorite pupil ever, the bond between the two of you. What do you want? Harry repeated, coming to a halt. Scrimjaw stopped too, leaned on his stick and stared at Harry, his expression shrewd now. 
The word is that you were with him when he left the school the night that he died. Whose word? said Harry. Somebody stupefied a Death Eater on top of the tower after Dumbledore died. There were also two broomsticks up there. The Ministry can add two and two, Harry. Glad to hear it, said Harry. Well, where I went with Dumbledore and what we did is my business. He didn't want people to know. Such loyalty is admirable, of course, said Scrimjaw, who seemed to be restraining his irritation with difficulty. But Dumbledore is gone, Harry. He's gone. He will only be gone from the school when none here are loyal to him, said Harry, smiling in spite of himself. My dear boy, even Dumbledore cannot return from the... I am not saying he can. You wouldn't understand. But I've got nothing to tell you. Scrimjaw hesitated, then said in what was evidently supposed to be a tone of delicacy, The Ministry can offer you all sorts of protection, you know, Harry. I would be delighted to place a couple of my aurors at your service. Harry laughed. Voldemort wants to kill me himself, and aurors won't stop him. So, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. So, said Scrimjaw, his voice cold now, the request I made of you at Christmas. What request? Oh, yeah, the one where I tell the world what a great job you're doing in exchange for... For raising everyone's morale, snapped Scrimjaw. Harry considered him for a moment. Released Stan Shunpike, yet? Scrimjaw turned a nasty purple color, highly reminiscent of Uncle Vernon. I see you are... Dumbledore's man, through and through, said Harry. That's right. Scrimjaw glared at him for another moment, then turned and limped away without another word. Harry could see Percy and the rest of the Ministry delegation waiting for him, casting nervous glances at the sobbing Hagrid and Grawp, who were still in their seats. Ron and Hermione were hurrying toward Harry, passing Scrimjaw going in the opposite direction. Harry turned and walked slowly on, waiting for them to catch up, which they finally did in the shade of a beech tree, under which they had sat in happier times. What did Scrimjaw want? Hermione whispered. Same as he wanted at Christmas, shrugged Harry. Wanted me to give him inside information on Dumbledore and be the Ministry's new poster boy. Ron seemed to struggle with himself for a moment, then he said loudly to Hermione, Look, let me go back and hit Percy. No, she said firmly, grabbing his arm. It'll make me feel better. Harry laughed. Even Hermione grinned a little, though her smile faded as she looked up at the castle. I can't bear the idea that we might never come back, she said softly. How can Hogwarts close? Maybe it won't, said Ron. We're not in any more danger here than we are at home, are we? Everywhere's the same now. I'd even say Hogwarts is safer. There are more wizards inside to defend the place. What do you reckon, Harry? I'm not coming back, even if it does reopen, said Harry. Ron gaped at him, but Hermione said sadly, I knew you were going to say that. But then what will you do? I'm going back to the Dursleys once more because Dumbledore wanted me to, said Harry. But it'll be a short visit and then I'll be gone for good. But where will you go if you don't come back to school? 
I thought I might go back to Godric's Hollow, Harry muttered. He had had the idea in his head ever since the night of Dumbledore's death. For me, it started there, all of it. I've just got a feeling I need to go there. And I can visit my parents' graves. I'd like that. And then what? said Ron. Then I've got to track down the rest of the Horcruxes, haven't I? said Harry, his eyes upon Dumbledore's white tomb, reflected in the water on the other side of the lake. That's what he wanted me to do. That's why he told me all about them. If Dumbledore was right, and I'm sure he was, there are still four of them out there. I've got to find them and destroy them, and then I've got to go after the seventh bit of Voldemort's soul, the bit that's still in his body, and I'm the one who's going to kill him. And if I meet Severus Snape along the way, he added, so much the better for me, so much the worse for him. There was a long silence. The crowd had almost dispersed now, the stragglers giving the monumental figure of Grawp a wide berth as he cuddled Hagrid, whose howls of grief were still echoing across the water. We'll be there, Harry, said Ron. What? At your aunt and uncle's house, said Ron. And then we'll go with you, wherever you're going. No, said Harry quickly. He had not counted on this. He had meant them to understand that he was undertaking this most dangerous journey alone. You said to us once before, said Hermione quietly, that there was time to turn back if we wanted to. We've had time, haven't we? We're with you, whatever happens, said Ron. But mate, you're going to have to come round my mum and dad's house before we do anything else, even Godric's Hollow. Why, Bill and Fleur's wedding, remember? Harry looked at him, startled. The idea that anything as normal as a wedding could still exist seemed incredible, and yet wonderful. Yeah, we shouldn't miss that, he said finally. His hand closed automatically around the fake Horcrux, but in spite of everything, in spite of the dark and twisting path he saw stretching ahead for himself, in spite of the final meeting with Voldemort he knew must come, whether in a month, in a year, or in ten, he felt his heart lift at the thought that there was still one last golden day of peace left to enjoy with Ron and Hermione. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was read by Jim Dale. Text copyright J.K. Rowling 2005. Recording copyright Listening Library 2005. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Digitally remastered by Pottermore at Pinewood Studios in 2015. Pottermore is the digital entertainment, news and e-commerce company from J.K. Rowling. Inspired by her Harry Potter books and the wider wizarding world. Pottermore is a place for Harry Potter fans to be entertained and discover more of the wizarding world they love through Pottermore.com experiences or products including Harry Potter ebooks, digital audiobooks, and more. Harry Potter characters, names, and related indicia are trademarks and copyright of Warner Brothers Entertainment. The story continues. Find out what happens next in this preview of the digital audiobook Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by J.K. Rowling. Text copyright J.K. Rowling 2007. 
Recording copyright, Listening Library, 2007. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Chapter 1. The Dark Lord Ascending. The two men appeared out of nowhere, a few yards apart in the narrow, moonlit lane. For a second, they stood quite still, wands directed at each other's chests. Then, recognizing each other, they stowed their wands beneath their cloaks and started walking briskly in the same direction. News? asked the taller of the two. The best, replied Severus Snape. The lane was bordered on the left by wild, low-growing brambles, on the right by a high, neatly manicured hedge. The men's long cloaks flapped around their ankles as they marched. Thought I might be late, said Yaxley, his blunt features sliding in and out of sight as the branches of overhanging trees broke the moonlight. It was a little trickier than I expected, but I hope he will be satisfied. You sound confident that your reception will be good. Snape nodded, but did not elaborate. They turned right into a wide driveway that led off the lane. The high hedge curved with them, running off into the distance beyond the pair of impressive wrought-iron gates barring the men's way. Neither of them broke step. In silence, both raised their left arms in a kind of salute and passed straight through, as though the dark metal were smoke. The yew hedges muffled the sound of the men's footsteps. There was a rustle somewhere to their right. Yaxley drew his wand again, pointing it over his companion's head, but the source of the noise proved to be nothing more than a pure white peacock strutting majestically along the top of the hedge. He always did himself well, Lucius. Peacocks. Yaxley thrust his wand back under his cloak with a snort. A handsome manor house grew out of the darkness at the end of the straight drive, lights glinting in the diamond-paned downstairs windows. Somewhere in the dark garden beyond the hedge, a fountain was playing. Gravel crackled beneath their feet as Snape and Yaxley sped toward the front door, which swung inward at their approach, though nobody had visibly opened it. The hallway was large, dimly lit, and sumptuously decorated, with a magnificent carpet covering most of the stone floor. The eyes of the pale-faced portraits on the walls followed Snape and Yaxley as they strode past. The two men halted at a heavy wooden door leading into the next room, hesitated for the space of a heartbeat. Then Snape turned the bronze handle. The drawing room was full of silent people, sitting at a long and ornate table. The room's usual furniture had been pushed carelessly up against the walls. Illumination came from a roaring fire beneath a handsome marble mantelpiece surmounted by a gilded mirror. Snape and Yaxley lingered for a moment on the threshold. As their eyes grew accustomed to the lack of light, they were drawn upward to the strangest feature of the scene, an apparently unconscious human figure hanging upside down over the table, revolving slowly as if suspended by an invisible rope and reflected in the mirror and in the bare, polished surface of the table below. None of the people seated underneath this singular sight was looking at it except for a pale young man, sitting almost directly below it. He seemed unable to prevent himself from glancing upward every minute or so. Yaxley! 
Snape, said a high, clear voice from the head of the table. You are very nearly late. The speaker was seated directly in front of the fireplace, so that it was difficult, at first, for the new arrivals to make out more than his silhouette. As they drew nearer, however, his face shone through the gloom, hairless, snake-like, with slits for nostrils and gleaming red eyes whose pupils were vertical. He was so pale that he seemed to emit a pearly glow. Severus, here, said Voldemort, indicating the seat on his immediate right. Yaxley, beside Dolohov. The two men took their allotted places. Most of the eyes around the table followed Snape, and it was to him that Voldemort spoke first. So, my lord, the Order of the Phoenix intends to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety on Saturday next, at nightfall. The interest around the table sharpened palpably. Some stiffened, others fidgeted, all gazing at Snape and Voldemort. Saturday, at nightfall, repeated Voldemort. His red eyes fastened upon Snape's black ones with such intensity that some of the watchers looked away, apparently fearful that they themselves would be scorched by the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. Good, very good. And this information comes from the source we discussed, said Snape. My lord? Yaxley had leaned forward to look down the long table at Voldemort and Snape. All faces turned to him. My lord, I have heard... Differently. Yaxley waited, but Voldemort did not speak, so he went on. Dawlish, the Auror, let slip that Potter will not be moved until the thirtieth, the night before the boy turns seventeen. Snape was smiling. My source told me that there are plans to lay a false trail. This must be it. No doubt a confundus charm has been placed upon Dawlish. It would not be the first time. He is known to be susceptible. I assure you, my lord, Dawlish seemed quite certain, said Yaxley. If he has been confounded, naturally he is certain, said Snape. I assure you, Yaxley, the Auror Office will play no further part in the protection of Harry Potter. The Order believes that we have infiltrated the Ministry. The Order's got one thing right, then, eh? Said a squat man sitting a short distance from Yaxley. He gave a wheezy giggle that was echoed here and there along the table. Voldemort did not laugh. His gaze had wandered upward to the body revolving slowly overhead, and he seemed to be lost in thought. My lord, Yaxley went on, Dolish believes an entire party of Aurors will be used to transfer the boy. Voldemort held up a large white hand, and Yaxley subsided at once, watching resentfully as Voldemort turned back to Snape. Where are they going to hide the boy next? 
At the home of one of the order, said Snape. The place, according to the source, has been given every protection that the order and ministry together could provide. I think that there is little chance of taking him once he is there, my lord, unless, of course, the ministry has fallen before next Saturday, which might give us the opportunity to discover and undo enough of the enchantments to break through the rest. Well, Yaxley, Voldemort called down the table, the firelight glinting strangely in his red eyes. Will the ministry have fallen by next Saturday? Once again, all heads turned. Yaxley squared his shoulders. My lord, I have good news on that score. I have, with difficulty and after great effort, succeeded in placing an imperious curse upon pious thickness. Many of those sitting around Yaxley looked impressed. His neighbor, Dolohov, a man with a long, twisted face, clapped him on the back. It is a start, said Voldemort. But thickness is only one man. Scrimger must be surrounded by our people before I act. One failed attempt on the minister's life will set me back a long way. Yes, my lord, that is true. But, you know, as head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, Thickness has regular contact not only with the minister himself, but also with the heads of all the other ministry departments. It will, I think, be easy now that we have such a high-ranking official under our control to subjugate the others, and then they can all work together to bring Scrimger down. As long as our friend Thickness is not discovered before he has converted the rest, said Voldemort. At any rate, it remains unlikely that the Ministry will be mine before next Saturday. If we cannot touch the boy at his destination, then it must be done while he travels. We are at an advantage there, my lord said Yaxley, who seemed determined to receive some portion of approval. We now have several people planted within the Department of Magical Transport. If Potter apparates or uses the flu network, we shall know immediately. He will not do either, said Snape. The Order is eschewing any form of transport that is controlled or regulated by the Ministry. They mistrust everything to do with the place. All the better, said Voldemort. He will have to move in the open. Easier to take by far. Again, Voldemort looked up at the slowly revolving body as he went on. I shall attend to the boy in person. There have been too many mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned. Some of them have been my own. That Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs. The company around the table watched Voldemort apprehensively, each of them, by his or her expression, afraid that they might be blamed for Harry Potter's continued existence. Voldemort, however, seemed to be speaking more to himself than to any of them, still addressing the unconscious body above him. I have been careless, and so have been thwarted by luck and chance. 
those wreckers of all but the best laid plans. But I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. And I shall be. At these words, seemingly in response to them, a sudden wail sounded, a terrible, drawn-out cry of misery and pain. Many of those at the table looked downward, startled, for the sound had seemed to issue from below their feet. Wormtail, said Voldemort, with no change in his quiet, thoughtful tone and without removing his eyes from the revolving body above. Have I not spoken to you about keeping our prisoner quiet? Yes, my lord, gasped a small man halfway down the table, who had been sitting so low in his chair that it had appeared at first glance to be unoccupied. Now he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. As I was saying, continued Voldemort, looking again at the tense faces of his followers, I understand better now. I shall need, for instance, to borrow a wand from one of you before I go to kill Potter. The faces around him displayed nothing but shock. He might have announced that he wanted to borrow one of their arms. No volunteers, said Voldemort. Let's see. Lucius, I see no reason for you to have a wand anymore. Lucius Malfoy looked up. His skin appeared yellowish and waxy in the firelight, and his eyes were sunken and shadowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. My lord, your wand, Lucius. I require your wand. I... Malfoy glanced sideways at his wife. She was staring straight ahead, quite as pale as he was, her long blonde hair hanging down her back, but beneath the table her slim fingers closed briefly on his wrist. At her touch, Malfoy put his hand into his robes, withdrew a wand, and passed it along to Voldemort, who held it up in front of his red eyes, examining it closely. What is it? Helm, my lord, whispered Malfoy. And the core? Dragon. Dragon heartstring. Good, said Voldemort. He drew out his own wand and compared the lengths. Lucius Malfoy made an involuntary movement. For a fraction of a second, it seemed he expected to receive Voldemort's wand in exchange for his own. The gesture was not missed by Voldemort, whose eyes widened maliciously. Give you my wand, Lucius, my wand? Some of the throng sniggered. I have given you your liberty, Lucius. Is that not enough for you? But I have noticed that you and your family seem less than happy of late. What is it about my presence in your home that displeases you, Lucius? Nothing. Nothing, my lord. Such lies, Lucius. The soft voice seemed to hiss on, even after the cruel mouth had stopped moving. One or two of the wizards barely repressed a shudder as the hissing grew louder.
Something heavy could be heard sliding across the floor beneath the table. The huge snake emerged to climb slowly up Voldemort's chair. It rose seemingly endlessly and came to rest across Voldemort's shoulders, its neck the thickness of a man's thigh, its eyes with their vertical slits for pupils, unblinking. Voldemort stroked the creature absently with long, thin fingers, still looking at Lucius Malfoy. Why do the Malfoys look so unhappy with their lot? Is my return, my rise to power, not the very thing they profess to desire for so many years? Of course, my lord, said Lucius Malfoy. His hands shook as he wiped sweat from his upper lip. We did desire it. We do. To Malfoy's left, his wife made an odd, stiff nod, her eyes averted from Voldemort and the snake. To his right, his son Draco, who had been gazing up at the inert body overhead, glanced quickly at Voldemort and away again, terrified to make eye contact. My lord, said a dark woman halfway down the table, her voice constricted with emotion. It is an honor to have you here in our family's house. There can be no higher pleasure. She sat beside her sister, as unlike her in looks, with her dark hair and heavily lidded eyes, as she was in bearing and demeanor. Where Narcissa sat rigid and impassive, Bellatrix leaned toward Voldemort, for mere words could not demonstrate her longing for closeness. No higher pleasure, repeated Voldemort, his head tilted a little to one side as he considered Bellatrix. That means a great deal, Bellatrix, from you. Her face flooded with color. Her eyes welled with tears of delight. My lord knows I speak nothing but the truth. No higher pleasure. Even compared with the happy event that I hear has taken place in your family this week. She stared at him, her lips parted, evidently confused. I don't know what you mean, my lord. I'm talking about your niece, Bellatrix, and yours, Lucius and Narcissa. She has just married the werewolf, Remus Lupin. You must be so proud. There was an eruption of jeering laughter from around the table. Many leaned forward to exchange gleeful looks. A few thumped the table with their fists. The great snake, disliking the disturbance, opened its mouth wide and hissed angrily. But the Death Eaters did not hear it. So jubilant were they at Bellatrix and the Malfoys' humiliation. Bellatrix's face, so recently flushed with happiness, had turned an ugly, blotchy red. She is no niece of ours, my lord. She cried over the outpouring of mirth. We, Narcissa and I, have never set eyes on our sister since she married the mudblood. This brat has nothing to do with either of us, nor any beast she marries. What say you, Draco? asked Voldemort. And though his voice was quiet, it carried clearly through the catcalls and jeers. Will you babysit the cubs? The hilarity mounted. Draco Malfoy looked in terror at his father, who was staring down into his own lap, then caught his mother's eye. 
She shook her head almost imperceptibly, then resumed her own deadpan stare at the opposite wall. Enough, said Voldemort, stroking the angry snake. Enough! And the laughter died at once. Many of our oldest family trees become a little diseased over time, he said, as Bellatrix gazed at him, breathless and imploring. You must prune yours, must you not, to keep it healthy. Cut away those parts that threaten the health of the rest. Yes, my lord, whispered Bellatrix, and her eyes swam with tears of gratitude again. At the first chance. You shall have it, said Voldemort, and in your family, so in the world. We shall cut away the canker that infects us until only those of the true blood remain. Voldemort raised Lucius Malfoy's wand, pointed it directly at the slowly revolving figure suspended over the table, and gave it a tiny flick. The figure came to life with a groan and began to struggle against invisible bonds. Do you recognize our guest, Severus? asked Voldemort. Snape raised his eyes to the upside-down face. All of the Death Eaters were looking up at the captive now, as though they had been given permission to show curiosity. As she revolved to face the firelight, the woman said in a cracked and terrified voice, Severus, help me! Ah, yes, said Snape, as the prisoner turned slowly away again. And you, Draco? asked Voldemort, stroking the snake's snout with his wand-free hand. Draco shook his head jerkily. Now that the woman had woken, he seemed unable to look at her any more. But you would not have taken her classes, said Voldemort. For those of you who do not know, we are joined here tonight by Charity Burbage, who, until recently, taught at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. There were small noises of comprehension around the table. A broad, hunched woman with pointed teeth cackled. Yes, Professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles, how they are not so different from us. One of the Death Eaters spat on the floor. Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape again. Severus, please. "'Silence!' said Voldemort, with another twitch of Malfoy's wand, and Charity fell silent as if gagged. "'Not content with corrupting and polluting the minds of wizarding children, last week Professor Burbage wrote an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet. "'Wizards,' she says, "'must accept these thieves of their knowledge and magic.' The dwindling of the purebloods is, says Professor Burbage, a most desirable circumstance. She would have us all mate with muggles, or, no doubt, werewolves. Nobody laughed this time. There was no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice. For the third time, Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape. Tears were pouring from her eyes into her hair.
Snape looked back at her, quite impassive as she turned slowly away from him again. Avada Kedavra! The flash of green light illuminated every corner of the room. Charity fell with a resounding crash onto the table below, which trembled and creaked. Several of the Death Eaters leapt back in their chairs. Draco fell out of his onto the floor. Dinner, Nagini, said Voldemort softly, and the great snake swayed and slithered from his shoulders onto the polished wood.